Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org. For he finds fault with them, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Despite our obedience, despite of our rejection of you, you, God, will never fail us. And we are so grateful for that. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here today that those things would comfort us today that your promise, that you will never leave us or forsake us. You will forgive us our sins and our iniquities, and that you'll be merciful to us. That's such a good promise. Lord, would you bless Pastor Dave and fill him with your spirit? Will you give him the words to preach to us today? May you open the hearts and minds and ears of, of the people that are hearing this message. And may this, may this be for our transformation to the glory of you, Jesus. of that last song, you are a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, that's who you are. We're going to focus on the promise keeper aspect of God's nature today as we say our theme is we believe in God's covenant of grace. So we're going to talk about what a covenant is. And a covenant basically in so many words is that it's a solemn vow made either by people or by God. When people make it it's, it's made in the awareness that God is watching, and he's going to enforce whether you keep that vow or not. And if not, there will be consequences. That's the assumption. And so if you think about it, the fabric of society is woven together by promises that we make to each other, either spoken or unspoken. So, for example, I'll use some official examples. Uh, when someone is elected as president or elected to the Congress, which we're about to see in a, in a few days, uh, they have to swear an oath that they'll keep the Constitution and usually swear it in the name of God. It used to be on a Bible, not necessarily do that anymore, but still it's a solemn moment where they vow something to you and to me. When someone joins the military, whether they're enlisted or whether they're an officer, they enter the military by swearing a vow to protect this country. And it ends with, so help me God. And then a witness in court is asked the question, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And you so help you God, and the answer is supposed to be, I will, or I do. Then there's the marriage vow, which I've said, is my version that I've said many times with people, and it also assumes that God is watching and listening. I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, 
for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until the day of our death. I pledge this with truly with all my heart. And I always would tell the couple that when we say that, we're assuming that God is a witness to that vow, and so are his people who are present. And so we're going to talk about covenant today, but we're going to talk about it in terms of the covenant that God made. The, old, the, the, word, the phrase Old Testament, by the way, to describe uh, the books of the Bible before the New Testament really means New Covenant. And New Testament means New Covenant. And a covenant is a solemn vow, a solemn and binding vow that God makes to bless his people in various ways. So we're going to talk about Abraham primarily because God made a covenant with him that is a pattern for the covenant that he established through Jesus himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to Abraham and the covenant that God made to Israel through Moses. And so in the Old Testament, God vows to give people descendants, protection from enemies, wealth, peace, a homeland. But most importantly, God vows to give himself to his people. And that's what we forget so many times when we talk about the promises of God. The ultimate promise that God makes was stated in the passage that Pastor Mike read. I, they shall be my people, and I myself will be with them and be their God. That's the ultimate promise. And so we're going to take a look at that, that God uh, promises spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians, through Jesus. So he promises uh, pardon for sin, complete blanket pardon from all sin. I will remember your sins no more. Regeneration, justification, the, the final verdict on your life is passed by God when you receive Christ. He declares that you are righteous. We receive adoption, abundant life, and final resurrection. Those are the, the promises that God has vowed to give us and sealed them with the blood of Jesus. And we'll see what that means in a moment. Second point I want to make is that we believe that God initiates Covenant of covenants of grace with sinful people. By the way, I forgot my I forgot my first point. <laughs> Here's what it says: We believe that Scripture reveals a God who binds Himself to His people with covenant vows. So that's the first point. My second point is that we believe that God initiates covenants of grace with sinful people, and this is true even of Abraham. We think of Abraham. Isaiah calls him the friend of God, and he was, but. He was a sinner before God called him. And the backstory to God's call to Abraham is found in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, I'm going to read verse 4. And they said, that is the people of a place called Shinar, come, let us build ourselves a city and tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, these were people who lived in a place called Shinar, which later became Babylon, which was notorious for its idol worship and its worship of false gods. And they, were gonna, they thought they were going to make a city and a tower out of brick that would be so magnificent that it would storm the gates of heaven and that they would bring themselves into the presence of God. And they did this in defiance of God's creation mandate, which said, uh, God blessed them and said, reproduce yourselves, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. They were supposed to scatter and populate the whole planet, but they said, no, let's stick together 
Otherwise, we'll be scattered and we won't have a reputation. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to have a reputation. We want to be known as a great country and a great people. And that was a sin, and God, it was defying God. And so guess what God's antidote, guess what God's countermeasure to their sin of idolatry was? God's countermeasure was to call Abraham. So I'm going to read from Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, his name wasn't Abraham yet, that comes later. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will, and I will bless you. And I will make your, great, your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And listen to this. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. That promise was fulfilled when Jesus gave the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations or all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do everything I have commanded you. And so uh, Abraham was an idol worshiper. Joshua says of him, he was speaking to the people of Israel. Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah of Abraham and Nahor. They served other gods. So Abraham was a sinner, an idolater, the worst sin possible when God called him. And that's good news for us because God goes out of his way to seek out sinful people. And if you have not yet made a commitment to Christ, know this, God has your number and he's seeking you out. Don't be afraid. That's a good thing. You want him to find you. And he binds himself to his people through a covenant of grace. And God's call of Abraham, God called Abraham to give up everything everything that went to make up his identity, his homeland, his father's household, and his extended family to go to a place that God would show him. And it, it foreshadows Jesus' call for people to give up everything that makes up their identity, to hand it over to him and follow him instead, and to let him be the definition of our identity. This is what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. He said to them all, that is, all the people listening to him, including his disciples and those who were not disciples. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. You say, well, wow, that's a big sacrifice to make. How can I give up me? I'm not sure, so sure I'm ready to do that. And he says, do it daily. This is a daily commitment that we make that we are not our own people anymore. We belong to Jesus. But then he gives a reason. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life or her life for my sake will find it. It's only by giving up everything that we come to discover who we really are and why we were meant to be here. And so this is a point I want to make before I go on to my next one is this, that God wants to use you and me as followers of Jesus to be the countermeasure to sin in our day. And sin is rampant and widespread. He wants us to be the antidote. Now, that doesn't mean that we have room to become proud or self-righteous about it. That should be a humbling thing because we're sinners too. But God really wants to use us 
as an antidote for the poison of the sin that's in our world today. And so we could put it like this. God makes a solemn vow to bless sinners to become his people so that they may in turn become a blessing to other sinners who also become his people. That's the antidote to sin. God called Abraham because he wanted to call people from every imaginable people group you can think of to be his people and part of his family. And that's what he wants to do with you and me. Third point, we believe that in his covenant vow, God gives himself as a blessing of sinners. I mentioned that this is God's ultimate blessing and promise to give himself to you and me. There's no greater gift that we could receive. So I'm going to read a rather long passage, Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6, where God actually makes a covenant with Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. Here it comes. I am your shield, your very great reward. I am your reward. This is the NIV version. I am your shield and I am your reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Imagine that. Since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. He, that is, God took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then Abram believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of earth. That should remind you of the giving of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the place that was rampant with idolatry to bring you to a place where I could give myself to you. I delivered you. I will give you this land to take possession of it. That's the vow. Now imagine, God has said to Abraham, I myself am going to be your reward. And Abraham says, but, but, but God, I have no kids. And he was still thinking of blessing in terms of the way every man in his culture and day thought of blessing. It was to have male children to pass on the name and pass on the estate. And he was measuring his worth by the way the culture measured it. He still didn't get it. And we can give him some space not to get it because this was the first, the first times that God was speaking to him. So, of course, he's not going to understand in the beginning. But Abraham actually thought that something or someone besides God could fulfill the deepest need and longing of his life. He thought it would come through children and through having heirs that would carry on his name so that he'd be known generations to come. And by the way, our greatest sin is this, to imagine that something or someone can bring us more satisfaction or even equal satisfaction to the satisfaction that God gives. That's our greatest sin. And we all do it. We all do it multiple times a day usually. So Abraham was still, he still, there was still a bit of idolatry that lingered, though he didn't recognize it as such. So God promised, this is, this is the amazing thing about God's grace. Abraham was in effect dissing God here. 
I, I know, okay, you're going to give me yourself, but I want kids. And God said, all right, I'll give you that. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. I'm going to give you a homeland. And so God promised to give him everything the people of Shinar were seeking, and then some. Instead of judging Abram for his idolatry and stomping on him, he said, I'm going to bless you with those things. Don't worry. Look up at the sky. If you can count the stars, a hundred billion, he didn't know that then, but a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. So shall your offspring be. And the Bible says that Abram believed it. God credited that to him as righteousness. Now, that's the pattern for New Testament, New Covenant believers. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross for sin and who rose from the dead, God declares his final verdict on us in the here and now. And he declares that you and I are righteous when we trust in Jesus. When he looks at you, as Tim said so long ago, said it very well, when he looks at you, he promises to see Jesus. So I want to, if you get nothing else from this message today, take that. If you are a follower of Jesus, despite the faults and sin that still remains, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That should be, in our lives, the end of all guilt, of all condemnation, of all wondering whether God is smiling at me or not because the Bible says that he is. Well, then my next point is this, and this is kind of a historical thing. It's kind of a nerdy thing, but it, it illustrates the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. So my next point is this. We believe that the pattern of the Old Testament covenant foreshadows the new covenant that God made through Jesus. So I mentioned that Abram's doubt lingers, but, but, but God, how can I know that I'll gain possession of this land that you've just promised me? I'm a, I'm a Bedouin. I'm a, I'm a vagabond, you might say. I'm, a, I'm an alien in this country. I don't own a plot of land here, not a square foot. How could I possibly inherit this land? And so then God makes a kind of a strange demand in Genesis 15, 9 to 10. Listen to this. This is kind of weird if you don't know what's happening. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, that's a female cow, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged them in halves opposite, opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So what's going on here? Very strange, right? Well, it's, a, it's according to the pattern of the day. When two men would make a covenant vow to each other, people actually did this. They would take a sacrificial animal or animals, cut them in half, dig a little trench, and put each half of the carcass on each side of the trench so that the blood from this bloody mess would flow down into the trench. And then they would take off their sandals and actually walk through the blood, through this blood path, quote, unquote. And they would say something like this. They were agreeing that the gods or God was standing as witness to the vow they were making and that he would take action if either one of them broke it. Negative action, by the way, against the person. And they would say, actually say something like this. May the gods or God do so to me as we have done to these animals if I ever violate the terms of this covenant. 
this was a common, I share, I share that because, well, there's, there's a kind of a, an aside to that because the Old Testament used to be criticized as being the collection of myths and stuff. And then archaeologists started to find out that the things that are written in the Old Testament, including the book of Genesis, match right up with the cultures of the day that it was supposed to be from. And so they found evidence of this kind of stuff going on. And it, it, it guaranteed or affirmed the historical validity of the Old Testament because it was describing things that were going on in the culture of the day. So we can trust the Bible as the word of God. That's just an aside. So Abram created this blood pact, and he expected that he was going to have to make a vow to God, walk through the blood path himself, and say, may the Lord God do this to me and even more if I fail to keep the terms of this covenant. But then something strange happens again, verses 17 through 18. When the sun had set and darkness was fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So God sealed the covenant, the promise that he made to Abram with a covenant ceremony, bona fide covenant ceremony. The, the blazing torch and the smoking fire pot, that is symbolic of God himself. So what's happening here? Well, rather than commanding Abram to walk through the fire path, uh, through the blood path, rather, rather, God himself walked through that blood path. And the implication is something like this. This is God saying, I swear to God that if any of either of us should break this covenant vow, I will pay the price with my own blood. And I will certainly keep this vow, so help me. This is God saying that. I swear by myself, we'll read that from the book of Hebrews in a little bit. But God took a blood oath that he would, that he would fulfill on the promises that he made. We're going to talk next about Jesus' crucifixion. We believe that in Jesus' crucif crucifixion, God walked through the blood path for the new covenant. You know, it's an amazing thing when someone has the courage to sacrifice his or her life for the lives of other people. There's an un unknown aspect of the, the story of the sinking of the Titanic, the RMS Titanic that happened on April, 12, April 15, 1912. There were 35, 35 members of the engineering uh, group of engineers on board that day who stayed on board until it went under so that they could keep the electrical system functioning and help as many people as possible get to safety. They went down with the ship and died for the rest of the people on board. And that's what Jesus did. We, we think of Jesus' death so often and so much that we sometimes take it for granted. Oh, yeah, Jesus died for me. I know that. My sins are forgiven. We take it for granted. But imagine those guys knowing that they were going down, knowing that this were the, these were the last moments of their life. And instead of run like some of the cowards on board did, they stayed aboard and died so that other people could live. Men and women, the planet of Earth was going down, and it is going down. But Jesus died so that you and I 
to not just survive, but thrive and live. So we believe that in Jesus' crucifixion, God walked through the blood path for the new covenant. Now, Jesus understood this. He knew that his death on the cross, he knew that his crucifixion would be the blood, provide the blood that sealed the new covenant according to the Old Testament pattern. We find this at the Last Supper when Jesus said in Matthew 26, 27 to 28, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus understood himself to be walking through the blood path for you and me, to guarantee God's vow and promise beyond all shadow of doubt. So I want to read to you from Hebrews 8, the, the passage that Pastor Mike read earlier. I'm going to read verses 8 to 10 and then verse 12, which speaks about the new covenant. And then we'll talk about what are some of the ingredients of the new covenant that God promised. For he finds fault with them when he says, in other words, God found fault with the people of Israel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why? For they did not continue in my covenant. The people of Israel, for the most part, abandoned God's promise and abandoned their calling as God's people. But God said, you know what? I'm still keeping my end of the bargain. And so what I'm going to do is make a new covenant. For this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And here it is. God gives himself. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no longer. So what does God promise? In this, in this passage alone, God promises inner transformation. He says, I'm going to write my laws on their heart and inscribe them on their minds so that it will be the desire to obey it will, become, will come from within. It will become almost an instinct, an instinctive desire that they have that comes up without them even thinking about it. So that when they violate my laws, they'll be aware of it and they'll have regret and they'll confess and repent. I'm going to write my law on their heart. I'm going to change their heart from the inside out. God vows to forget their sins, to offer absolute pardon. And he can do this because, here's a big theological word. He made, earlier the author of Hebrews says that God had made propitiation for our sins. In other words, he offered a sacrifice of atonement. Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for their sins. Now, here's what that big word means. I hope that word is so weird to you that you remember it because it's a big word when it comes to believing the promises of God. Here's what it says. First of all, it points to the incarnation, God giving us to himself, God becoming one of us and pitching his tent among us, as the message translation says of John 1.14. In other words, he, he came and took up residence with us. Then, he said, said, then it means that Jesus died in our place. His death was a substitution 
for yours and mine. The book of Romans says in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he took our sins upon himself. He took God's judgment for sin upon himself, and that makes it possible for him to forget our sin because the penalty has been paid. He can forget our sin without sacrificing his justice, his eternal justice and his just nature. So he's not just giving us a pass, not by any means, but he is giving us atonement. He himself, God himself, paid the price for your sins and mine in the person of Jesus Christ. God walked through the bloodbath in Jesus when he died on the cross. He literally, literally sealed God's promise with God's blood. Which brings me to my next point. We believe that the new covenant vows to give believers great spiritual blessing, including absolute assurance of everlasting life. First of all, there's complete pardon. God vows to forget your sin. Now, and God can't really forget our sin because he's omniscient. He knows everything. So it's not like it's erased from his memory bank somehow. But here's what it means. It means that he promises not to bring it up and hold it in your face. He put those things behind him. They're not any longer an obstruction to the relationship he wants you to have with him. They're gone in that regard. It's like being convicted of a felony when you're a minor and then having your record sealed when you become an adult so that no one can access it. And God promises not to access it. And if God has done that with your sin and my sin, then we should do the same. We shouldn't be haunted by guilt. And the way not to be is to preach it to yourself. These words from Hebrews 8, verse 12, I will forget their iniquities and their sins I will remember no longer. I'll be merciful, rather. And their sins I will remember no longer. Preach that to yourself. It's a short verse. When you're overcome by guilt and condemnation and doubt, preach that to yourself. Then there's justification. Just like he did with Abraham, God equates our faith with his final verdict on our life. And the promise that is sealed with Jesus' blood says this, if you put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection and make him the boss of your life, that what's, that's what it means to make him the Lord of your life, if you make him the boss of your life, then God will count that act of faith as righteousness and will declare that you are a righteous person, which will be what marks you now. When God thinks of you, he thinks of a righteous person, i.e., he thinks of Jesus. He doesn't think of the you that used to be or the you that still commits sins. Yes, he takes count of those, and we need to confess those sins and repent of them. But we don't need to be haunted by guilt. We don't need to wonder if we're on God's good side or not. When he sees you, he sees Jesus. You think Jesus has the favor of God? You think Jesus is on God's good side? Everybody should be saying, yeah. Well, if he is, so are you. That's what this says. As much as Jesus is, so are you. And then God gives us the gift of himself through the Holy Spirit. 
He adopts us as sons and daughters. Romans 8, 15, or uh, uh, justification, by the way, there's a passage that goes along with that. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So God declares the ungodly to be righteous in Jesus Christ without sacrificing his own sense of justice. And then God gives us the gift of himself through the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 15 to 16. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back again to fear, but you received the spirit of, of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then listen to this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. The word testifies is a word that refers to the legal system of the day. It's like someone giving testimony in court under oath. Under oath. The whole, the whole good news gospel comes in the form of a covenant that God swore as an oath with his own blood, the blood of Jesus. And so if you're hearing voices that are causing you to doubt whether you have God's favor or not, you need to preach this gospel to yourself. I have received a spirit of adoption, not to fall back again into fear. And the spirit himself would say, you are my child. You are God's child. You are part of God's family. He's adopted you in. You are a legal heir to everything God is going to bring to this earth when Jesus comes again. Amen. We are going to inherit the planet because we are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Then there is the final resurrection. By the way, I forgot one. There is also the promise of abundant life in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come, Jesus said, that you might have life and have it abundantly. So it's not all about going to heaven when we die, although that's crucial. Because our lifetime here is short, so we need to know where we're going. But what we do here and how we live here matters. And Jesus said, I have come to give you the absolute best possible of all alternatives when it comes to living a good life. I put my life up against any alternative that you can think of and say it's better. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And then there's the promise of final resurrection. In John 11, 25 to 26, we find another one of Jesus' astonishingly audacious claims when he says, he's speaking to Martha, and her brother Lazarus has died of sickness, and Jesus came to the, to the town where they lived four days later. He didn't come in time to heal him, but he shows up now. So Martha went to meet him at the outskirts of the village, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes on me or in me, even though he or she may die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me, get ready for this, shall never die. Do you believe this? Amen. That's the promise. This, this body of ours is going to die. And it's going to turn to dust if Jesus doesn't come soon enough. But Jesus said, you won't die. You will not die. If you believe in me, you will not die. When your body dies in that moment, you will be in the presence of God, seeing him face to face. Those are the promises. 
So we could put it like this. This is God speaking. In the cross of Jesus Christ, this is God speaking. I solemnly swear by the blood of Jesus, my only begotten Son, to give you absolute pardon, regeneration, the abundant life, justification, my abiding presence until the moment of your death and you pass into eternity, at which point you will see me face to face. I swear to God, so help me God. That's what the cross says. It's God's blood oath. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 17 to 18. Let me read it to you. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he could, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So he's saying, so help me. My wife said, so help me me. <laughs> That's exactly what he was saying. There's no higher name by which to swear, so he swore by himself. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, those who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the author of Hebrews says there's two things going on here, and in both cases, it is impossible for God to lie. So the fact that God made a promise should have been enough to assure us that he's going to do what he said. Why? Because God cannot lie. He couldn't lie if he tried, and he wouldn't try. But just to make sure it got home to the people of the ancient world, he sealed it with a blood oath, saying, so help me, God. And it's impossible for God to lie or to revoke an oath that he's made. It's impossible. It, it would be totally against his nature. He has made a promise that should have settled it, but just to make sure that we get it, he swore an oath. So we can be 100% certain of our eternal destiny, number one, but also of his abiding presence and grace and favor in this life as long as he, he grants us to be here. There need be never a doubt, and if doubts come into your mind about that, then you need to preach the gospel to yourself. Just remember, just remember this line. God swore a blood oath that he cannot revoke. And he will not revoke. So if a person is a follower of Jesus, they can be 100% sure of the abundant life now and eternal life when the last moment of life on earth comes. The Apostle John wrote about that in 1 John 5, 11 to 13. He says this. I quote this passage a lot. This is the testimony that God has given us. Give means it's gift. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. And so it's kind of an either-or proposition. Whoever has the son has life. If you have the son, you have life now and forever. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. If you don't have the son of God, you can receive him by faith. Do it now. And then John says, I have written to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know, not hope or not wish, but that you may know 
that you have eternal life. And guess what? Eternal life begins the moment you put your trust in Christ. That moment, everlasting life begins. Jesus said, right? He or she shall never die. So it starts then. So if you're a follower of Jesus, your eternal life has begun already. You can be that sure of it. So we could put it like this. In Jesus, God took a blood oath upon himself to give the spiritual blessings of the new covenant to, to those who believe. He is saying through the cross, I swear to God that I will give you all these things, so help me God. That means if you are a follower of Jesus, you can be 100% certain of his blessing now and everlasting life when it comes. And by the way, his blessing now, I, I, uh, I want to quote Romans 8, 28 and 29, because this is what Paul says. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All things. That means that every single last thing that happens to your life or in your life, God is going to use that do something good in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. Everything, everything, all things. Now, I sometimes don't believe that. I sometimes have doubts about that. This is when I have to remind myself. Is this, is what, this is what God's blood oath says. Everything he will use to bring about good in your life. And what is the good? The highest good is found in verse 29. For those whom he predestined, he also, for those who whom he foreknew, I'm sorry, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And sometimes we struggle and complain about what we're going through because we've forgotten what the highest good is. The highest good for you and me is that I can be like Jesus. The highest compliment I've ever received in my life were times when people have said, that I've reflected the love and grace of Jesus. And I go, wow, that's bad news. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have God's blood oath guarantee of abundant life and eternal life and that every last thing that happens to you, God will bring good from it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I urge you to become one today not sure what you need to do to become one, contact us. Pastor Mike or myself or one of our elders will be glad or someone else will be glad to spend some time with you and to share with you how you could become an heir of the blood oath promise of God himself through Jesus Christ. Since he could swear by no one else, I, he swore sealed him. Our Father in heaven, I just want, I want to pray for us all. I, I think we all have moments of, of doubt or regret or guilt that haunt us. And I pray that we'll be able to preach the good news to ourselves, that this graphic image will burn itself into our mind. That you made a promise for one thing. 
It should settle it forever because you cannot lie. But you gave us this graphic image of a blood oath. That's what Jesus' blood did. Among other things, it sealed that promise. So I pray, God, that the good news of the gospel would sink down into the deepest part of our heart and mind, that we would know, that we would know, that we would know who we are in Jesus Christ, that we'd be liberated from guilt and doubt to be free and live free. Father, if there's anyone listening today or watching who is not a follower of Jesus, I pray that your spirit would speak to them and lead them to a place where they're just not satisfied until they settle the deal. God, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for all that you did to make sure we would get it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church Podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org.